I love that song. Just that subtle reminder that even in our deepest failings, Christ is ours forevermore and not based on anything that we can do or produce or can merit, but simply because he is good and merciful. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder constantly. Um, I'm, please take out your Bibles if you have them with you and open them up to the book of Daniel. There we resume our study this morning. Uh, we are in Daniel chapter 9. Today we begin a new chapter of Daniel. And we know, or for those who have been following along either uh, via the web or have been here, we've been looking at the visions of Daniel. And today we come to something different. It's about prayer. So it's very fitting that we read about the fact that Jesus got up early to pray, placing value on prayer early on in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 to be exact, to show us the value of what prayer is, that even the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, got up early and chose solitude to go have communion with his Father. And I mean, seriously, if Jesus, if that's good for Jesus, it's good for us. If Jesus placed value on that type of uh, practice, we ought to place value on that type of practice. So I'm glad we're examining prayer this morning because it offers us an opportunity to look at prayer for what it is and what it should be, and not so often for what people make it. Um, and I think, Daniel, if you're looking for any, any more beautiful prayer, any more God-centered prayer, any more prayer filled with grace, and, and just beauty and truth, look no further than Daniel 9 right here. You will not find a more beautiful prayer. I mean, this is right up there with Jesus' wonderful high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. It's gorgeous. It's perfect. It's, it flows, and it brings us to a place of understanding what is it that we're doing when we pray, and it, it's going to answer that question beautifully. And so Daniel kind of takes a break from what we've been doing to focus in on this moment of intimacy and community with God the Father. And so he's inviting us into this moment. I mean, he recorded it for a purpose to kind of pull back the curtains, as it were, to let us look into this experience of Daniel and to say, hey, this is a, a wonderfully instructive moment when we look at this prayer. How are we to pray? What ought to be our, our spirit when we pray? What ought to be our mindset? Does, does it mean that we can't come devastated? No, of course. Daniel is devastated. He's devastated. He's in exile. He doesn't want to be enslaved. What is he doing in his devastated moments? He doesn't come with it all together. He comes to God in prayer. And beloved of God, we need to remember that message. We need to remember that prayer is not coming when we have it all together. And I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that many of you even think that. But we can come to prayer, we can come to the Lord in prayer when we are at our absolute worst. And God invites us to. Come, all to me, Jesus said, who are weary and heavy laden. And so, without further delay, I don't want to detract from this passage of Scripture. I want to let the Word of God just speak for itself this morning. So this morning we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. So follow along with me now as we read this. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books 
the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works. And he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me now. Father, what a a rich legacy of prayer you have left for us in your word. Thank you. This morning as we examine it, I pray that this would not just be an academic exercise but this would be an opportunity to have our hearts transformed and to understand the rich gift we have in prayer. Be with us, I pray, now as we study. Use it to renew our minds and spirits. In Christ we pray. Amen. You know, it's not so much common anymore. My children are older, but it was very common in my house as my children were growing up to hear the little phrase, you promised. You promised. 
And often that was not the case. It was I heard a whiff of something, and so now I'm going to up the ante and just say, well, hey, no, you promised. Oh, we heard, we've heard that many, many, many times, and, and it's, it's imbalanced as to which child said it the most, but I'm not going to identify that person today. But typically, when one of my children uttered that they asked for something, and I would demur, that means I would show kind of a reluctance, I would show a reluctance, I would demur in, in a moment, but they feel it had been promised. You know, now, no, 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 wait, what? No, you, you promised, you promised. You know, they would become like little lawyers and, and wanting to, to try the case. But what they're doing is simple, okay? What they're doing, what they were doing was simple. They were petitioning me, at least in their minds, based on a promise. They were coming to me, not asking for something new or innovative. It was, you made a promise. I'm ready to cash in on said promise. And so I'm here asking for what you promised me. What a... What a simple, simple thing that's actually kind of complex. So it's a, it becomes a beautiful picture. I mean, because what are they doing? They're basically saying, you gave your word, now we're asking you to fulfill your word. It's a beautiful picture of how prayer actually works. When we pray to God, this is kind of what we should be doing. God has made promises in Scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. Or Jesus Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Brad, how do those promises work in prayer? Well, when we feel desolated, when we feel shredded, when we feel isolated, it's compelling us to come and say, Jesus, you've promised that you are with your people always, even to the end of the age. I feel isolated. Satan's uh, tactics to isolate me are working. I'm asking you to fulfill your promise and be near to me. Beloved of God, what a beautiful way to pray. It's simple. It's simple. But you're basing a prayer on a truth that you know to be objectively, absolutely true. So you're not asking for something new or innovative. You're not asking for something that Jesus can't or won't do. You're asking Jesus to do what he's already promised to do. And it becomes a wonderful way for us to have communion with God in prayer. The content of prayer should be driven by what we know is true about God. So the content of our prayer should always be driven about, by what we know to be true about God. It's driven by gracious promises to us. Jesus says, come to me. I just quoted this a minute ago. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beloved of God, that is a promise. That is a promise. So why would we not come to Jesus when we are weary and heavy laden, and say, Father, you have promised me rest. I need rest. I'm broken. I'm burdened. I'm beat down. I need rest. And he will give it. Now, you may say, well, Brad, I've prayed for rest before, and I didn't feel that way. And and I identify with you. There are times where I pray things to God, and I don't feel it either. But beloved of God, this is where we have to always remember whether we feel it it's true. Man, I'm preaching to Brad right now because so often I can convince myself it's not true simply because the feeling isn't there. And it kind of it maybe kind of devolves into a, a mild case of anger or, or despair. But we have to learn that Jesus has made a promise that he is with us or Jesus has made a promise that he will give us rest. 
And we have to come believing that he delights, desires, wants to do those things for us. When we look at Daniel 9, at least these first 19 verses, this marks a transition in the book of Daniel, right? So uh, we've been looking at visions, we've been looking at beasts, we've been looking at interpretations, but now we transition from all that to prayer. And I don't think, or I, I do think rather, this is by a very unique design. Daniel has been dealing with future events, which now for us is human history, but Daniel's been dealing with all these future events and, and sobering realities, and in the middle of that, because at the end of this chapter, we're going to be dealing with the 70 weeks, so we, we're going to have another vision to kind of ferret out. In the middle of this, we have this prayer where Daniel has communion with God, and he's asking God for help and relief. So what do we see? What's the pattern? He's seeing the desolations of the world, and what does it drive him to do? To pray. To pray. To spend time with the Father in prayer. And so he records this beautiful petition for us. It's filled with adoration for God, for his character, and it's, it's filled with the confession of the people's sins. Did you see how repetitive those confessions were? How many times he says, we've sinned against you. We've sinned against you. We've transgressed your law. We didn't heed the word of the prophets or your servants, the prophets. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from the law. He says it again and again, and he's not trying to be unnecessarily morbid. He's just highlighting. He is making sure that as we come away from this prayer, that God's answer, God's mercy is not grounded in anything that the people have done. It is grounded in his own goodness and character. In fact, what the people have brought before God, their offering, is their dirtiness, their sin, their transgression, their iniquity. All the things that shouldn't mark them is what they have laid before the Lord. And Daniel is saying, in spite of our failures, will you answer as you promised? I love it. People have not merited anything from God, but Daniel's not appealing on the basis of merit. He is appealing to the compassionate, righteousness, the compassionate, righteous character of God. God, answer us because you are righteous. God, answer us because you are compassionate. God, fulfill your word on the promise because you are good. So he's appealing to God's promise to the people, and he's boldly telling, asking Yahweh, please keep the promise. Please keep the promise. That's exactly what he's doing. Well, this is instructive to us, and I've already alluded to this a bit, because it reminds us of what prayer should be. This is what prayer should look like. It should be like this. That Christians often, and over the years in Christian ministry, have just seen in such a market made on like the, the prayer of Jabez, and I'm not interested in having a conversation about that, but seeing the market of, of what Christian marketing has done to prayer. Beloved of God, when you see prayers like this in Scripture, you know why they're there? They're there because God knows we go far afield. He knows that we stray in the wilderness. He knows that we get lost in the wilderness sometimes, and we need to be drawn back to what is true, what is good, and what is right, and this prayer is one of those examples. Christians often will approach prayer like they do a vending machine. Okay, Father, I need B9. I need C2. And it's just coming with these felt needs. And are felt needs important? Please don't hear the pastor of the chapel saying your felt needs are not important. 
I am not saying that. So that, don't hear me say that. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that when we come to God, he's invited us into his presence through the mediation of Christ for the purpose of communing with him and making our heart or, or laying out our hearts to him, but finding our hope in his character and in his promise. Daniel says, come to God in prayer to praise righteous character and ask him to keep his promises. So yeah, prayer is about communion. But it's also about remembering how good and gracious God is. You know, I find it interesting that when I'm struggling and I spend some time of prayer, I can walk away from it sometimes. Maybe I'll pray David's words in Psalm 51, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit in me. My circumstances aren't different, but my heart has changed because I've come to the Word of God and asked it to do something that I can't do. And beloved, surely you've had those similar experiences. We don't always get what we ask for, do we? You have prayed for things that you didn't get. I have prayed for things that I did not get. But you know what I'm learning? You know what I'm learning? Every time I come to the Lord in prayer, I am communing with God. I am communing with Him. God has given me a gracious entry into His presence. In other words, God has richly given of Himself, especially through Jesus. And beloved of God, that is a rich, rich gift. <clears throat> so this is not me promising you if you go home and you pray Daniel's prayer, your circumstances are going to change. They probably won't. In fact... If we pray Daniel's prayer, we're going to become more aware of how unworthy we often are or can be before the Lord. But you know what we're going to come away with? A deeper sense of the righteousness of God, his compassion and love. And beloved, those are the things that the world needs. You need it. I need it. The world needs that. Even though they don't know it. And even though they think they don't want it. That's what they're longing for. G.K. Chesterton once said, even the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. The world wants something, and we have the answer right here. Without further delay, this morning there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that prayer should always be grounded in truth and promise. That prayer should always be grounded in truth and promise. So what we're looking at here is uh, Daniel's prayer. It's, a, it's what we would call a righteous plea. Now, why is it right? Why, why am I not saying righteous? Because it's grounded in God. It's there to adore and praise God, and it's looking to God alone for answer. So when we think about what a righteous plea would be, this, this is it. This is a, and there are other great prayers. You can go to Jonah's prayer in the belly of a fish, and that is another beautiful prayer. Another great Old Testament prayer. But right now we're looking at Daniel 9, and we're looking at this righteous plea. It's this clear, intimate prayer of Daniel. And as we've already said, it's kind of how prayer should look. So when we think about prayer, and we think about coming to God in prayer, we need to kind of keep it in our minds that the purpose of prayer is for us to realign our will to the will of God and not try to change God's mind or will. Um, so when Jesus prays for the cup to pass from him in the garden of Gethsemane, we, God, Father, take this cup from me. But what are, the, what are the most important words in that prayer? Not my will, your will be done. It was God's will, it was the Father's will to send the Son to the cross. Jesus came in a moment of, of deep sadness, 
and said, if you're willing, you can take the cup away from me. But it was not the Father's will to do so. Sometimes, beloved, it is the Father's will for us to walk through those hard times, but not alone. What does the first thing Jesus do when he's hung up on the cross? He, he, begins, he begins to pray. We could actually say the words of Christ from the cross form a beautiful lament psalm, a, a lament prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He starts there, and then he begins to speak to God in kind of staccato fashion, quick, simple verses. He prays for the forgiveness of the people, and then he prays for the Lord to, for the Father to receive his spirit. So even in the depths of woe, he has a connection with the Father, and he's using it. He's calling out to God. When we look at this passage, these first three verses, verse 1, it gives us the motivation for Daniel to even make this prayer. He says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Let's stop right there. So the first year of Darius is about 539 B.C. All right, so actually, if you've been keeping a record of this or keeping count, we're talking about approximately 11 years after chapter 8. So approximately 11 years after chapter 8 took place. And so he makes this contextual note, Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. We've already dealt with this before, but I'll just bring it up briefly. Obviously, Darius is unknown to history. There are a lot of people who read Daniel and think Daniel made a mistake because there is no recorded Darius. There are a few opinions on this. And one is that Darius and Cyrus are actually the same person that Cyrus uh, consolidating Persia and, and Media together, had a Persian named Cyrus, a Median name named Darius. That's one theory. Another theory is that Persia, the, the Medo -Per, or the Persian uh, Median kingdom that came, that Darius was just a regent ruler that ruled in the realm of Babylon until he died, and Cyrus consolidated all his power, then and became the supreme ruler of all Persia. Which, which view matters? Neither, really. That's not the point. And because we think that the Word of God, we know that the Word of God is true, I accept this account as Darius being a real person, but who he was isn't really the point. What we're really doing is Daniel setting a context for us. It's about 539 B.C. Why is that important? Because it's almost 70 years after he was first exiled. He's motivated to pray. Why? Because he knows the exile should be coming to an end any time now. <clears throat> so, we have this context. What does it tell us here? In the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived, or literally, I, Daniel, understood or gained insight in the books, the number of years, he calls them the books, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So, right here, we, we get that Daniel's been reading Jeremiah's prophecies in exile, and so he understands from Jeremiah's prophecy that the exile is coming to a close. If God has spoken through Jeremiah, Daniel is saying that according to Jeremiah, the exile should be ending. I'm going to read this real quickly. You can jot this reference down, Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11. But I want you to hear this. This is from the book of Jeremiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send all the tribes of the, of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, 
And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all those surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from all them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Daniel is not just pulling this out of nowhere. He is studying the prophecy of Jeremiah. But look, look at what he says. Look how he identifies it. The word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Do you know what that tells you? Do you know what Daniel is telling you? Do you know why he trusts that that 70 years is accurate? Because he sees Jeremiah's prophecy as the inspired scripture of God. He sees it as the word of God. This is not just Jeremiah's you know, thoughts, Jeremiah's blog on what's going on in Israel. This is the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. Daniel, at this point in history, in 539 BC, sees Jeremiah's prophecy as the inspired word of God. That should be comforting to us, that we are reading a prophet that even other prophets or other men of God understood to be writing under the inspiration of Yahweh. So he sees this word as, as inspired, and it's the promise of God to his people in exile. In other words, Jeremiah said judgment is coming, but there's going to be a begin date and an end date. Right? So when you look at this, you have these first couple verses. What is it that emboldens Daniel to pray as he did? It's the Word of God and the promises therein. It's the Word of God and the promises therein that inspires Daniel to be bold when he's coming to the Lord. And so you have this in verse 3. This, kind of, this is the transitional verse. You, kind of, you have your intro and you have your transition right here. I turn my face to the Lord... So after, after recognizing his understanding of Jeremiah, he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So in the face of contemplating God's promise, what does Daniel do? He prays. He chose to pray. And I love that <clears throat> literally in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that I turn my face. It says I set my face. There is something definitive about that. That turn is a fine translation. I'm not trying to, to, to cast doubt on it. But the, the idea that he set his face to the Lord, he set his gaze on the Lord, he set his face to the only one with answers. <clears throat> we should take heart in that. But I also appreciate what he's telling you about his own heart and posture. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Those three, those things intimate lament. They intimate lament. They intimate repentance and grief. But you know what else they do? They intimate humility. I'm not coming to Yahweh saying, give me what you owe me. I'm coming to Yahweh saying, you are righteous and gracious. Will you please do what you have promised? There's a difference. And Daniel, <clears throat> excuse me, embodies that difference perfectly. When, we come, when it comes to prayer, here's what I would say about it, what I appreciate about this, that 
John the Baptist very famously said, I must decrease and he must increase. Well, in prayer, we must decrease and the Spirit of God within us must increase. Because you see, we're coming in honor of God's invitation. We're coming because God commands us to pray. We've been told in the New Testament to pray without ceasing. So prayer is a commanded action, and we should be coming to pray or to commune with God and to hear from Him. So that's just kind of so the the, the first three verses are kind of the preface. Then verses four four through fifteen kind of capture the adoration confession aspect of this prayer. So Daniel is basically in these verses 4 through 15 is teaching us how to address God and how to address ourselves. So in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Now that's an important. He uses the word here for Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So he's identifying exactly who he's praying to. He's not praying to Nebo, he's not praying to, to, to Marduk, he's not praying to any, any other Baal or, or any other Molech or any other God. He's praying to the God, the covenant God, the God who set his name over Israel, the God who has called a people from the earth into relationship with himself. That's the God that Daniel addresses. And he's doing this, he's, he's using that name to not only identify the God, but to point to the goodness and faithfulness of this God. We're going to get to it in just a minute, but it's a God who, who brought them out of Egypt. It's a God who parted the Red Sea. It's the God who established his people. It's the God who rescues. It's the God who redeems. It's the God who restores. That God, that's the one that Daniel addresses. And so as he's getting into this, look how he describes God. Look at these wonderful adjectives. Oh, Lord, the great, awesome when he says, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, that's just the implication there is faithful. Steadfast love, that beautiful covenantal word, you've heard me mention it several times, chesed. We don't, I mean, steadfast love is a great translation. We can't really get our minds and hearts around the type of love that it is. It's covenantal. It's when we sing, oh, love that will not let me go. It's that type of love. Daniel is, is describing God's character as great, awesome, faithful, and so he's feeling this compulsion to come to the Lord because of his good character. He, I can petition this God because he's not capricious like Baal or like, like Molech or, or any of the other gods. This is a good God, an awesome God, a great God, a faithful God. And so we see that his prayer is motivated by God's goodness and faithfulness, not by what he wants. And that's an important distinction. Does he want something? Yeah. Does he pray earnestly for that thing? He will. Yeah, he does. But he lets us know on the front end that his motivation for coming is God's goodness and faithfulness. And you know, you and I can come and make requests of God. I want you to. I want to be better about making more requests of God. But let us root our confidence and our motivation in the goodness of God and not his willingness to answer and give us the things that we want. You can see here how he describes the people, verses 5 and 6. I mean, sinned, have done wrong, that literally transgressed, act wickedly, rebelled, turning aside from your commandments, not listen to your servants, the prophets. <sighs> it's pretty comprehensive. So, but you have to juxtapose that. God is great. God is faithful. God is good. God is awesome. What have the people been? Well, the people have been 
sinning and iniquitous and wicked. And what are, we, what, are, what are we being told? That the people did not reflect the good character of God. God has acted with them in one way, and they have totally rebelled. It's familiar. We can't look at them and wag our fingers. We can see ourselves in the confession, and we're supposed to. We see ourselves in the confession. And you have to appreciate that as Daniel is talking about the people rejecting God's Word, and did you notice the pronouns he uses? We, us. This man of upright character is not separating himself out from the sin of Israel. Why? Well, he's already told us why. We already know why, because of his own humility and his own understanding of his own heart that he too needs the grace and mercy of God. Oh, beloved, there is no person in history save Jesus who can claim not needing grace and mercy. And even Jesus appealed to the mercy of the Father on the cross. So when we come to this, Daniel is not being falsely humble. He's identifying with the people of God because he is that. He is those things. Verse 7 again, roots God's character in righteousness, or God's character is righteousness. But then he juxtaposes, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands. In other words, those who have been exiled because of the treachery that they've committed against you. So when we look at verse 7, we're seeing God's nature is righteous. The people, an open shame... And again, he says in verse 8, to, the Lord, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers. And so even in exile, Daniel is kind of highlighting a, an attitude of sin in the people, that you were, we were exiled because of sin, and while in exile, we have still continued to sin. Yeah, at this point, you're like, man, he's piling on. He is. He is making it. Just He is overstating, not overstating the case, he's piling on to make the people or to, to make it supremely clear that the people offer no badge of merit to Yahweh. So he's being intentionally repetitive. But here's something that's startling and should grab us. Verse 9 is beautiful. In the midst of this, now you've just seen a litany of sin to the Lord our God. He just said, belongs righteousness. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Beloved, God's compassion and forgiveness reigns even in our rebellion. Now, this is what I'm not saying. Go out and sin hard because God's mercy reigns. But this is what I am saying. Are you sitting here this morning? in a state, some state of brokenness because of some sin pattern that you keep coming back to, you keep thinking you're done with it, but then you keep coming back to it? Well, we have a beautiful reminder that even in that dark night of soul, we serve a God who is merciful and forgiving even in our rebellion. That is a lovely thought. Daniel continues, I mean, he just, again... Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws. All Israel has transgressed your law, verse 11, and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, he's getting back to Deuteronomy 28, the covenant cursings, 
The servant of God has been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. What is he doing? He's making the case here that God's nature and character are grace and mercy, and it cannot ever be earned, that it is given by God. It is freely bestowed by God. That Daniel is saying, in spite of what we do, God loves us and, and cares for us, not because of what we do. Now, here's sometimes we can hear folks who want to beat this drum a little too loud and say, yeah, so we're, we're never capable of doing anything good. It's all of God. Is grace and mercy and salvation all of God? You bet it is. And I plant my flag right there. As new creatures in Christ, are we capable of doing good things? Well, absolutely we are. And if you're saying that I'm a new creature in Christ, but I'm not capable of doing good things, then you and I need to have a, a talk about what's going on in the heart. Because we are called as new creatures in Christ to imitate God as dearly loved children, to be holy as God is holy. And so when Daniel is talking about the absolute need of the people, he's not talking about the people not being capable of doing anything good. In fact, he's saying we should have been doing better than we have been, and we failed miserably because of the sin at work in our hearts. But the point is, is that our actions, the things, even the good things that we do, do not build up some sort of tank of merit or wage for God to answer us. God answers us because of who he is, not who we are. But be holy, obey the word of God, do the right thing, try to emulate righteousness, be kind, love your neighbor, do justice, seek mercy, do all these things, but not so that you can be accepted, but because God has called you into a glorious fellowship with himself and we want to reflect God to our world. Israel's primary traits here. He's just, it's on display. You don't have to read too much into it to see it's lawlessness and rebellion. And so we are told that in verse 12, he confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great, literally great evil. ESV will all, usually in these prophetic contexts translate evil as calamity. It's fine. It means the same thing, but evil is a little bit more graphic to me. So he will bring upon us great evil. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. That's a bold statement. You think about Sodom and Gomorrah. That was, that was pretty ravishing. But why, Daniel, I'm going to come back around to this here in just a moment. The reason he says this is because Sodom and Gomorrah was a pagan nation. Jerusalem was the city of God. The name of Yahweh was over Jerusalem. And so it had deeper implications. But what does what verses like verse 12 and verse 11 tell us? That God keeps his promises. God promised in, in Deuteronomy that if you do not keep covenant with me, you will be cursed. And these are the cursings that you will deal with. And that's exactly what God did. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil or calamity has come upon you. And listen to this. This is sobering. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities. Beloved, do you know why that's sobering? Because Daniel is saying we are under judgment, and even in judgment, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. We've continued to turn to our flesh and to the pleasures of this world. He's talking about Israel indulging sin. It's very reminiscent of the people in Revelation who are confronted with the face of God and they pray, have the mountains fall on us and crush us so that we don't have to look at you in the face. 
Israel, God's people, called out of the world, indulged sin. What is Daniel talking about here? He's talking about a human problem, a human problem of how easy it is to come back to sin. The Word of God is clear on how he feels about sin. We know how God feels about sin. It's an abomination to him. Any sin, it's as R.C. Sproul once said, it's it's cosmic treason, and he's right. And yet we choose it again and again. Now, there are certainly reasons for that. Some of them are, are rooted in in just a false sense of what's going to bring us pleasure or help or hope. Some of them because it brings some sort of physiological relief and so we do it that way and some just because we just want it. And if we're just honest about it, we just want it. That's what we want and we're going to go after it. So we choose it. But when we're doing that, here's what we're doing. We choose iniquity over truth. We choose death over life. We choose transgression over righteousness. We choose bitterness, what is bitter, over what is sweet. Thomas Watson, Puritan, in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, says, until sin be bitter, Christ won't be sweet. I love that, I love that quote. Unless you think I'm preaching to you, oh, oh no, beloved, I'm preaching to me because it's just too easy to find myself in seasons of sin and I want to say, how did I get here? And I know good and well how I got there. I systematically chose things that set me far off from God and then I'm crying out in the wilderness, Lord, where are you? His answer to me from Scripture is, you're right where you wanted to be. Sin is serious and even as redeemed creatures, beloved, if you are redeemed in Christ this morning, we cannot let sin get the better of us. You do, I do, I do all the time, and my family has to see it. But this is hopeful where we can just put our sin on before the on the altar of the Lord and just legitimately say, I don't want it anymore. I want your righteousness. I want your compassion. I want your mercy. And those things are infinitely more valuable to me than the sin that I would choose. What is this prayer getting at? Therefore the Lord, 14, has kept ready the the evil and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works. He has done and and, and we have not obeyed his voice. (laughs) He's putting God's righteous, uh, God has shown to be righteous in both grace and judgment. And God's redemption has been met with rebellion again and again and again and again and again. Where was the beginning? The beginning of that is Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve eat the fruit they were not supposed to eat. And then it culminates from there. And we see people again and again, people who are redeemed, choose rebellion. We see it in Abraham. We see it in Jacob, sons of Jacob. We see it in all through the Exodus. We see it in Judges and Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. I'm not going to list them all. My point is, is a thread of, of human rebellion just runs through the Bible, a big red one, and it continues. And so when God displays his righteousness, it's in grace to redeem and it's in judgment. 
Lastly, these last four verses, Daniel appeals to the promise. This is the appeal to the promise. Daniel knows, as I've already said, he knows the exile is ending. What is he doing in verses 16 to 19? You made a promise, 70 years, please keep the promise. And so, as he's doing this, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. Now, therefore, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy for your own sake, for your name's sake. Make your name great through your deliverance and the relief that you want to give. That's what Daniel's appealing to him to do. Make your face, I love this, shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. And he continues. So he grounds his plea for mercy in what? God's righteousness. God, you're righteous. Be merciful. What is he doing? He's placing his hope in God's goodness. For your name's sake, you are Yahweh. You are the God who put your name over Jerusalem, over the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, Lord, end our suffering because of who you are, not because of us. That's what he's doing. Last two verses, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, that the city is called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Relieve us, please, because you are compassionate. I love verse 19. You can't, it doesn't come out in English. This is just a group of imperative verbs. Imperative is a tense of, of urgency or command. In this particular context, it would be urgency. Hear, imperative verb. Forgive, imperative verb. Pay attention, and imperative verb. Act, imperative, imperative verb. Do not delay, imperative verb. There's urgency here. You know what Daniel's urgency is grounded in? And his confidence that Yahweh is willing and able to do what he's asking. When I, when I think about this, I, I just think that God's promise is the fuel for faithful prayer. That God's promise really is the fuel for faithful prayer. Um, we tend to approach petitions of any sort, so petitions of any sort, with the knowledge that the person being petitioned has the ability to fulfill the request. That's why we ask. We ask because we think that the person we're asking can do what we're asking them to do. So that's the nature of petition already. That's, that's actually almost so innate, so natural, just we don't even think about it. We should certainly approach God that way. We should. God has given us many gracious promises, and that should be the impetus for why we come to Him in prayer. He's worthy of our prayer and adoration, our praise and adoration. But he's also promised us many things in his words. And beloved of God, he does not give begrudgingly. He doesn't have a loaf of bread and he takes a small morsel off and gives it to you. The Lord delights to give generously to his people. Now, do we always get what we want? No. Do we always get what we think we should have? No. Do we get what we need? Yes. And sometimes, does that come with pain and hardship? Yes. Sometimes, do we find ourselves crying out in the wilderness, God, please? Yes. And in all those things, God is good and faithful to keep his promises. 
we should make our requests known to God. We should always let his good word and sure promises guide our petitions. Come to God with a heart that says, how can I be more transformed? Come to God with a heart that says, even in my brokenness, I come to you because I know that you are whole and you can mend what is broken in me. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and its power. Thank you for the rich beauty of what Daniel has to offer. Oh Lord, if we could examine this prayer for three or four Sundays more and still not exhaust the beauty and truth therein. But use your word this morning, I pray, to renew our minds and spirits. Help us to grow in grace, to grow in holiness, and to desire righteousness, to hate sin, to hate sin and desire righteousness. Oh Father, please help us hate sin. Please help us to see it as you see it so that we can be more like you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.